Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Thank you, Matt, and musicians for leading us. Man, it is good to worship the Lord together. Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 9. In a moment, we're going to jump into, I have to admit, has become one of my favorite stories in the book of Joshua, the story of the Gibeonites. But before we do, I ask you to draw with me close to one another and our sovereign Lord Jesus to ask him to open our ears, open our eyes, and our hearts to receive the message of Jesus Christ together. Let's pray. Jesus, we cry out like the man in Luke 18. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. We know that without your great mercy, we cannot hear your words properly. We will stumble on them. We will take them as words for somebody else here. We'll twist them to mean something else that makes us experience this morning lighthearted and encouraging instead of allowing the hard truths of our sinful rebellion against you to compel us to come to the cross for true life. Please, Lord, have mercy on our souls and grant us repentance and faith. We are your people and you've promised to be faithful to complete the work you have started in us. So in faith, we cry out asking you to be faithful to that promise. Jesus, King of our hearts, you, Son of David, have mercy on us that we might see you clearly today and receive your word with thanksgiving. It's in Christ's most precious name we pray. Amen. I want to start out by asking you a question. How many of you have ever been tricked? How many have ever been duped or swindled or hoodwinked? Or one of my favorite terms, how many have ever been bamboozled? I've been duped. I've fallen prey to someone else's plan to deceive me before. Um, I'm not a particularly gullible person, but there have been times for sure when uh, I was perhaps not wise or didn't think through all the ramifications of what someone was telling me. And sometimes it's been true that a charlatan has gotten the better of me. And what they told me was not exactly true, and yet I believe that it was true. Times when I acted upon information that I thought would be reliable, but in the end, it was all a farce. Now, what I want to do is, for a minute, take, take an example. Take the late 90s, or perhaps for some of you, the early 2000s. Um, how many of you remember something that looked like this coming into your electronic mail inbox? This is called email. This, if you don't know, for those that don't know, this is actually a chain letter. You see all the big caps? Please read. It was on the news. <laughs> this took two pages on Tuesday USA Today. It is for real. Uh, it may look like a poorly written emotional letter appeal, but in fact, it was the promise of money for the reader and success. And if you didn't read it, if you remember this, you don't have to read it all. I'm going to read it in a moment, okay? Just hold on a second. Look up here. So if, if what happens is if you don't read it, and if you don't pass it on, you're going to have like a curse on you or something like that. If some of you might remember this kind of stuff. This one is particularly fun to me. I like this one. It says this, to all my friends, 
I do not usually forward messages, but this is from a good friend, Peerless Sanborn, and she really is an attorney. If she says this will work, it will. After all, what have you got to lose? All caps, sorry everybody, just had to take a chance. I'm an attorney and I know the law. This thing is for real. Rest assured, AOL and Intel will follow through with their promises for fear of facing a multi-million dollar class action suit similar to the one filed by PepsiCo against General Electric not too long ago. Dear friends, please do not take this for a junk letter. Bill Gates sharing his fortune. If you ignore this, you will repent later. Microsoft and AOL are now the largest internet companies and in an effort to make sure that the Internet Explorer remains the most widely used program, Microsoft and AOL are running an email beta test. Amazing. When you forward this email to friends, Microsoft can and will track it, if you are a Microsoft Windows user, for a two weeks time period. <laughs> for every person that you forward this email to, Microsoft will pay you $245. For every person that you sent it to that forwards it on, Microsoft will pay you $243. And for every third person that receives it, you'll be paid $241. Within two weeks, Microsoft will contact you for the address, for your address, and then send you a check. Man, that is a good deal. I mean, we should get on this thing. I mean, you got to start, you know, sending this out to all the friends on your contact list, anyone, all of them, just spam them all. This is before there's a spam filter. Like, just get it out there. I want to make sure we get lots of money on this. And unfortunately, there's a poor souls that sent this out to their whole contact list. And amazingly, Microsoft never looked for their address. They never called. They never asked for anything. Two weeks went by and they didn't get any money. It's amazing. Instead of getting what they thought, they had been uh, subject to a true bamboozling. Now, there's another one that happened at my, uh, a job that I took many years ago. <laughs> I remember early in the morning getting an email that was forwarded on to us that had content that said, warning, stop using the plastic containers with food in them to heat up in the microwave. And then it cited all this reliable information about these persuasive arguments why this was eventually going to lead to your death. And so he forwarded it out to all of us. Uh, I mean, it was an absolute crisis in the lunchroom, you can imagine. We received this in the morning, probably about 9 o'clock in the morning. But I think around 9.20, someone must have went and talked to him. Because by 9.30, we received a separate email that said, I apologize, this is embarrassing for making a company-wide snap decision based on what proved to be a chain letter, and I have been hoodwinked. At some point in your life, you are going to be tricked in some way. You're probably subject to some type of fraud or trickery in some way. Watch it happen. Today, in Joshua 9, we encounter the bamboozlement of Israel by the Gibeonites. These guys effectively pull off one of the most successful charades in all of Scripture, and it has massive consequences. You may already know this story, but uh, we're going to read the whole thing. So if you want to listen along, that would be good. Or if you want to follow, it's fine. I'm going to read all of chapter 1 to us. Here we go. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and, tore, and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. 
And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. And then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you? And where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Asheroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and to go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of, of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took of some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shepherah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest, the wrath, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are, from, we are very far from you, when you dwell among us. Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do it to us. Do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill him. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Wow, what a deception. I mean, they really did it. They were able to create a scam that was so believable and complex and backed up with props old wineskins, uh, worn out shabby clothing, and then they have knowledge of the Israelite religion. You see this? They knew that the peoples that were far off from the country could be spared, and they could have a covenant with them. Anyone that's in, they knew they're going to be destroyed. So they make sure they have understanding of all this, and they really put together a lot of effort to make this scan happen. And what happens? Israel fell for it. They questioned these actors. They, they tried to make sure that they were secure and to make sure that they didn't have some deception like this occur to them. But in the end, they didn't seek the Lord. And they fell for the scam. And they made a covenant with these Canaanites, the ones who were in their midst. 
And as a result, they did not do what the Lord had told them to do. They did not crush everyone in the land. They did not offer Gibeon and the surrounding three cities as an offering of destruction unto the Lord. They really screwed this one up. They did not do as they were supposed to do. They had everything that they needed, if you remember this. They had everything they needed to obey God, to do what they were supposed to do. If they were unsure, they could have easily called on the Lord and asked his device. They had that, if you remember this, they had, it's called the Urim and the Thummim. Uh, those are two stones that would show and they would hide them and they would pick out which one. And it would help them by the word of the Lord to tell what they should do. But they didn't do that. Instead, they, they decided to do what they thought best in this situation. And after hearing these men out, after testing their provisions, they decide that they are going to deal kindly with them, that they will make a covenant of peace with Gibeon. Well, it's only a matter of time, three days to be exact, and the news comes. These guys are not from far away. These guys are your neighbors, and they live among you. But the rest of the story takes us through the process of chasing these men down, confronting them, and eventually sparing them their lives because of the seriousness of the covenant that they swore before the Lord. I mean, you see them really get into it as the people are frustrated with their leadership for not killing these Canaanites. It's not good to be fooled. Not a good thing at all. So from a preliminary reading of the text, there are two lessons for Israel and for us here, right? Number one, seek the Lord. In all things and at all times, seek the Lord. We see the writer point out that the leaders here did not ask counsel from the Lord. And presumably, it was because of this that they did not detect the lie that they were being fed. They were hoodwinked. They should have sought the Lord concerning this decision, but they did not. And so also, we should seek the Lord. Number two, though, we realize that oaths are very important and serious. A swearing of a covenant before the Lord was incredibly important. So much so that the Canaanites, who were deserving of absolute horrific destruction, everything that breathes, are saved from sure judgment. That's how important this oath is. I mean, of all things that would qualify from the backing out of an oath, you would think that this would be it. Someone who deceived the other party. You would think that that would be a means for us to say, hey, this was not done in proper way. We can back out of this covenant. Not so. Not here. You see the leaders say, let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. A promise, a pact, an oath, or an agreement here sworn before the Lord is not something to take lightly. We should also then in our own agreements, our pacts, our promises, do them seriously. And actually Jesus goes one step further. If you remember in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he says not to be taking oaths at all. Instead, he says we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. And so we learn from this story that we are to seek the Lord always and be very careful to have honest speech that keeps its words correctly before our fellow man and before God. These are probably the two most common lessons that we find coming out of this chapter. But is anyone else like me? Does this story bother you? Does anyone else get to the end and like, that's it? Like this is the point? Something doesn't seem quite right here. These Weasley Gibeonites lie and fake their way into the promised land, alive. Uh, it, it just doesn't seem right that a group of sinners would receive salvation in this way, a trickery. I mean, these were Canaanites. They did not obey God. They were terrible, rebellious people. 
They were liars. They were deceivers. They were destined for God's wrath. We've learned that well already throughout the book of Joshua. And yet, by the end of the chapter, they are delivered and they get a covenant with the people of God. When I start thinking about these questions, <laughs> I get more and more confused. I'm like, I don't, I don't have any good answers for this. What's going on? Is this passage really about making sure that we pray more often, that we seek God more often? Is it all about us making sure that we're serious about our promises before God? Is that the real message of Joshua 9? Is that what it's all about? I mean, obviously, it's really good to seek wisdom from the Lord and to ask of him and to seek him. We see that all over the scriptures and to be careful to fulfill our oaths. But the question for us as Bible students is, is that what Joshua 9 is all about? Was that why he put this here? I would like to propose to you a different way of looking at this scene. Listen for a moment. Joshua chapter 9 is all about the salvation of the Gibeonites through faith. Listen again. Joshua chapter 9 is all about the salvation of the Gibeonites through faith. I, I, I know this is a little stark here, but Joshua 9 is about God's salvation to a wicked people who trust him and eventually throw themselves at God's mercy. Look back at verse 1 and 2. This episode begins this way. We don't start it with the word of the Lord. We don't start it with the Israelites. We start it with these peoples that are across the Jordan. Look at it. As soon as all the kings who are beyond the Jordan in the hill country, and then he lists them all, as soon as all of them heard about this, what did they do? They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. This is how we start the whole pericope. The whole episode starts this way. When all the Canaanite kings hear about what happened at Jericho and Ai, what they do together is bring together a coalition to fight against Israel. Now consider verse 3. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patches, sandals on their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were dry and crumbly and they went to Joshua. All the Canaanite kings respond to God's great works of power by gathering to fight, to put up a defense. But Gibeon, Gibeon, they respond to God's great works by going straight to Joshua. The contrast is unmistakable. This is how our author is showing us. This is what everybody else did, but this is what Gibeon did. On their part, these people are doing something totally different than the rest of the unbelieving world. The Canaanites hear the news of God's wonders and they harden their heart and gather to battle against this God. That's their response to God's wonders, to the good news of who God is. The Gibeonites, as we will see further, hear the news of God's wonders and what do they do? They draw near to God and his people, not in a position of fighting, but in a position of submission. They place themselves under. Let's continue here. They gain an audience with Joshua and they say, and say to him and the leadership in verse six, this is what the first things they say. We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Does anyone get the urgency there? We have come from a distant country, now make a covenant with us. Please make a covenant with us. Make a covenant with us. We really need you to make a covenant with us. What are they asking for? <laughs> They're asking for peace, some sort of sworn oath that would allow for them not to be destroyed. They want a covenant with these people. It's very interesting also that these Canaanites, unbelieving Canaanites, would ask to be part of God's covenant people Israel. 
In verses 7 through 11, you're going to see the leadership respond. And they're going to ask good questions to explain what's going on. Maybe you're really not these people. And they notice a few things about them. First, they, they, you, you'll see, though, that they take possession, position of submission, these people, when they come in. In their explanation to the leadership, what do they call themselves three times in this little section? Servants. Look at 8, 9, and 11. They call themselves servants of these people. They come bowed low, knowing that they are at the mercy of God. They only get one shot at this, and they're going to come ready to hear. Second, notice that they're continuing to ask for one thing, of covenant, of peace. They want some sort of guarantee that they will not be destroyed. Why? Because third, of their excellent reasoning. These guys get it. They are asking for this covenant because they have heard the report of what God had done in Egypt and what he had done on, on the other side of the Jordan, both to King Sihon and King Og. And at this point, the Gibeonites' reasoning really begins to sound like someone else's reasoning that we've heard before, back in chapter 2. Right? A Jericho harlot named Rahab. Like Rahab, they ask that they would swear a covenant with them. Listen to what Rahab says in 2.12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that I, as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. Gibeon is asking for a covenant of salvation, physical salvation from destruction. And they are coming as servants, knowing the power of God of Israel, and they are afraid. Don't miss that. They are freaking out. Their hearts are melting. We know how the story goes from here. The Gibeonites present their evidence. They bring all their wares before them. The men of Israel kind of test them to see if these clothes, are, well, they are pretty worn out. This bread is kind of crumbly. They look it over, but they fail to seek the Lord. And the truth is maybe they should have really dug a little deeper. But to them, as they tested it, it seemed right. It seemed like this was the right thing and the merciful thing to do to this group that had come and asked for this covenant. So they proceed to secure a covenant with Gibeon, and they let them live. So yes, we see Israel had made a covenant with a people who had tricked them. It was an agreement that was made under false pretenses. Three days go by, and then they discover this. They realize that they've been duped. The people chase them down, but they don't kill them. Because the leaders had sworn to them by the Lord. And like, like we said before, their oath is very serious. The congregation of Israel is angry. The text says that they murmured against the leaders. This is not good. This is that same word that we saw in the wilderness when, when Israel grumbled against their leadership. This word is never a good word. This always denotes sin. They're angry or murmuring or grumbling against their leadership. Why? Well, because they didn't kill the Canaanites that they were supposed to. And somehow these guys were going to be saved. Their lives were going to be saved. This is the same thing that we saw in the wilderness. We'll come back to this, but the leaders defend these people because they had sworn to them by the Lord that they would not harm them. The leadership decides that from that time on, from that time being, they would be woodcutters and water getters. They will be saved from destruction, but they will be put into servitude. They will serve the congregation. But after the leaders finish with these people, they get a summons from Joshua. Joshua calls them, wants to question them. But notice that not much really happens to advance the plot line here. We're not getting new information that totally blows us out and puts us forward. This little addition to the story between them and Joshua is not added for more details. 
what we're actually getting is a clarification of the point of what's going on here. It's giving us the little more behind the scenes and having them declare things. Joshua summons them. Notice that he doesn't deride them. He doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't call them unpleasant names or shame them at all. He simply asks them the question, why did you deceive us saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And then comes the confession. Look how they respond. An admission of their position before the people of God. The people of Gibeon answered this way. Why do we do this? Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of this and did this thing. I'm talking about this old trickery here. And now, behold, we are in your hands. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Now we have complete honesty. Where we had trickery and deception, now there's honesty and a confession of the truth. They don't come back defending themselves. They come back confessing their position and fear, and they put themselves right into the hand of Joshua, telling him, whatever you think is right for her to do to us, do it. These people heard of the works of Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, and unlike every other nation around them, they believed what they heard and responded, like James tells us to, with action. With their faith came action, came works. Consider that these people first hear of the great wonders of the Lord, leaving Egypt by God's power, conquering Sihon and Og by God's power, but then somehow they've heard a secondary part of this revelation, that that same God is now moving into the rest of Canaan to destroy every inhabitant of Canaan. But Gibeon does not turn away like all the rest, or gather to fight against this person. Rather, they believe. They believe that this would certainly be true and that this God was not one to be messed with. And they believe that it was better to be on his side than to keep their freedoms and fight against him. They're not going to take their chances being free from this God. They would rather set themselves underneath his counsel. It's amazing that we watch as two groups of people Right? They have the same types of people in every way hear the message of this great God and respond completely different ways. Is it not how it happens here in our own church? Where people hear the word and some listen and respond and others go away not understanding what they've heard? Is it not true in our own homes? I don't think my story is that unique. I think there's probably been several homes even amongst our own where children have grown up under the consistent teaching and preaching of God's word and parents who love Christ and have prayed for their children and yet one child goes and rejects and hates and runs away from God and the other, by some miraculous grace, turns to him by God's mercy and seeks salvation. It was Matthew Henry who said, the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. In other words, parents, listen please. Do not believe that you screwed up your unbelieving children. I can tell you right now, you have done plenty of things that screws things up for them, but it's God who enlivens dead people, not you. Likewise, those that have successful Christian children, you didn't do it. It was God who blessed you. 
You cannot somehow make them save. You cannot somehow put inside of them a desire to know and love God. That is only by God's spirit. Just as a side note, parents, I know this is true. For those that have unbelieving children, just for a moment, remember, if they are still alive, their final chapters have not been written. It is on us to love them then by praying and speaking truth and praying that God and pleading with him that he would save the souls of these children and our neighbors and the people that we love around us. I can't explain it, but somehow these Gibeonites responded differently than their neighbors. They respond in faith. Actually, I can't explain it. It's God who enlivens dead people. I can't explain it. (laughs) It's God who gives light to darkness. It is God who gives faith, and it's Paul who talks about the gift of God, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Mysteriously, we watch as God draws the Gibeonites to himself. Any other explanation, by the way, is man-centered. If you think they're clever enough to figure this out, that they're like, oh, we'll, we'll choose Jesus and all the other things. No, no, no. No one seeks after God. Any other explanation of this puts all the credit back on man for figuring it out, that they were so clever. It is God who draws and they believe. So they believed that this great God was powerful and that he would indeed destroy them. If they, and so what do they do? They jump into action. They were so convinced that this God would certainly destroy them that they make a plan to put themselves in the best possible position to receive mercy from this God. Re- remember, they're Canaanites. They've, they've worshiped thousands of gods. They have no law. They don't understand what it means to be under God's ways or his law. They have no rules on how to treat one another. They certainly aren't concerned about being above board and honest with the people that they're trying to receive some sort of covenant with. They just want to be saved. They get it. They understand without that, they will be destroyed. They're gladly, gladly involved in deceiving the people of Israel if it means that they can have peace with Israel's God. So what they see here, and so on and so forth, we see that they understand their position, they get it, and in faith, they stand waiting to see what Joshua will do, what Joshua will decide. And listen to the precious, glorious words of verse 26. If you know anything about Joshua, if you know anything about the name of Joshua, you'll understand. Listen to verse 26. This is Joshua's response. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. Gibeon is now safe from destruction. They have, in fact, gained a covenant of salvation. They have been delivered. What did we expect? Is God not merciful? I mean, when we see this for what it is, we realize that these people are coming to God in faith. They're willing to go to great lengths to secure salvation from the coming judgment, including trickery. And by the end, you see them casting themselves on the mercy of God and his people. And God, through Joshua, delivers. Yahweh saves. He has been consistent. But we rightly wonder then, right, is this really what's going on? Like, is this legit? Like, uh, did, is it simply a physical salvation or do they actually undergo some sort of real change? Like, what's changed about them? Look at verse 27. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water. He could have stopped there, but he doesn't. I love this. Could have made them cutters. You know, Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day. 
in the place that he should choose. The new position of Gibeon is really, really important. Here they stand. They're not going back to their land to just do whatever they were doing before. In fact, next week we'll see in chapter 10 that their decision to follow and listen and be under the mercy of God puts them at odds with all of the rest of the people around them. They become enemies now for all these people. These Gibeonites have been saved to be servants, both of Israel, but more importantly, for the altar of the Lord. Or as Joshua says in verse 23, some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And you can hear Gibeah say, praise the Lord. We'll take it. Deal. Done. You're going to save us? Done. I don't care. I can carry water. I can cut wood. I don't care. You save me, I'm in. You're not going to destroy me, I'm in. Whatever you say, I will do it. I'm in your hand. Gibeon has become a group of people who serve the entire congregation by serving to outfit the altar of the Lord with wood for sacrificial burnings and to to draw water for purification and these washing uh, ceremonies. Gibeon is a servant at the door of the house of the Lord. that ring a bell for anybody? Let me read Psalm 8410. I know you know this. The psalmist is talking to the Lord and he says, For a day in your courts is better than thousands elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Is this not exactly what happened to Gibeon? I mean, they were dwelling in the tents of wickedness, having the wrath of God stored up against them. Their doom was sure, but God, who is rich in mercy, heard their believing cry, and he rescued them. He delivered Yahweh saves from their sure destruction. And what does he do? He makes them servants in his house. Praise God. In the future, we're going to see and watch as Gibeah actually ends up playing a very significant role in temple worship throughout Israel's history. Throughout the time of Solomon and all the way to exile and back, you're going to see their name come up. Even in the book of Nehemiah, who do you see showing up as one of the most important parts of rebuilding Jerusalem? The Gibeonites. Amazing. They are folded in. This is awesome. I mean, this is salvation of sinful men. This is abundant, ridiculous mercy to undeserving rebels. This is our story. Do you realize that? That we are Gibeon? We talked about it when we went through chapter 2. We are Rahab. We are also Gibeon, lying cheats, And yet God in his mercy has come to us and loved us. We were wicked, conniving, little cheats, rebels deserving judgment, but God graciously drew us. We may not even be able to explain it, but we trusted him alone. It was him and him alone that we wanted. We needed to be on his side. I don't know if this is anyone else's experience. I'm pretty sure that it should be. But I can remember early times in my life, sitting under the preaching of the word and being scared to death of this God, realizing that judgment was real. And if I did not have someone to save me from it, I deserved every bit of fire. That was what was going to happen to me. I deserved it completely. I knew that I needed him. I knew that I would not be safe unless he saved me. And I knew that I wanted him to have mercy on my soul at any cost, even at the cost of his son. Jesus. And the good news is that's exactly what he chose to do, to kill his son Jesus in my place so that I might be redeemed, 
so that I might rightly be called a son of God. It was because of Jesus that I was able to know salvation, and it's only through faith in him that I can live in safety under the rule and reign of the Lord God. I mean, believers, this is our story. This is not some crummy old dusty story that doesn't matter. This is our story. This is who we are. And we should be amazed that God would do this for us. We were taken from the tents of wickedness and now we stand as servants of Christ. You ever heard that term throughout the New Testament? It's littered. It's all the way through. He calls us ministers, servants, even slaves of Christ. That's who we are. There are two applications for us this morning. Number one, for those here who have no idea what I'm talking about, or you're on the fence with who Jesus Christ is, or you just downright don't believe, if you do not know and love and worship this God, let me say today, you stand opposed to him. You stand against the God of the universe who calls you to be righteous. And guess what? You can't do it. It's impossible. The Bible says it's not just like some of us. No, he says that all of us, every last one of us are wicked. None of us seek after God. None of us are clever enough to put ourselves into his camp. We will never, ever measure up to his glory. So may I say to you, may I plead with you, look to God, our deliverer who delivered Gibeon and see yourself here. Throw yourself at the mercy of this God and trust him and him alone. Do not be like these other nations who saw and did not believe, but rather fight against this God. He alone can save. Any other course of action will be fruitless. In fact, it will lead to your destruction. Hear this as the word of the Lord. I, I, friend, I plead with you. I beg of you today, do not continue against this God as an enemy of who he is, but fear him and come to him and rely only on his mercy. Believer, this is our story. This is our great story. We must not move on from the truth that we are the Canaanites, that we were dead in our sins and that Jesus made us alive. I mean, all of our hope is in Jesus alone. It's either him or nothing. In fact, it's first to nothing. It's destruction. He made our salvation and our joy possible through Jesus Christ. And it's only through him that we can know full and true joy. You talk about meaning for your life. There's no other meaning besides this one. Remember his great love for us. Remember the Lord's sacrifice. Remember his atoning sacrifice that made rebellious Canaanite servants into the house of God. Taking from those who rebel to those who serve at the door. Today we have a chance to remember. You can see we're about to celebrate the Lord's death together. We're about to proclaim it to one another and to the world that he died. And this is so important to us. It's the crux, the crossroads of our entire existence. This is what makes this work. Without Jesus Christ, it's all a shadow. And we might as well just live it up however we want to. But because Jesus Christ came and died and gave his life for us so that we could have our sins paid for, we can now live in freedom under God himself. We remember and celebrate the king's sacrifice. We remember and give ourselves to him. I'd like to ask the men to come forward as we prepare uh, to hand out the elements and the musicians as well as a moment. And while you're sitting there, I'd like you to listen as we consider 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 25. Before we do this, I wanna make this very clear. This is not some sort of magic session that's going to happen here. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is not for you. 
do not do this. This doesn't make any sense to those that are outside the church of Christ. Drinking this juice will not save you. It, it really only makes sense for those who are believers and understand their unity in the death of Jesus Christ, our head. So if you do not love Jesus and submit to him, please, no one's gonna look down on you, but please just pass these along. Do not take of this. This is important for the church. It's not for you. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of this last supper, if you remember, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it, illustrating for them the pain and the suffering that he would endure on the cross. His body would be broken, and he would then take the curse upon himself, which is the reason that he came for us. Then verse 25, Paul says, In the same way also he took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The cup represents, represents this, this, this juice, this white, I'm sorry, this red juice that we see represents the blood of Christ. It was through blood, the shed blood of Jesus, that we could become sons of God. And so as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are showing our connection both to what Christ did for us on the cross, but also for what Christ is doing now and making us like him today. So men, if you'd stand together, we'll serve. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.